0: Oh, we are in trouble today. Last week the clock quit. So I just put a new battery in it. It's been 1040 for the last 10 minutes. We're never getting out of here. <laughs> Welcome to our church. It's so good to be with you guys. This is one of the highlights of my week, to be with brothers and sisters, to hear great music, to hear active little babies, and to listen to God's word being preached. Just a few announcements, because I know you can read, but to highlight, we have a fellowship meal next Sunday, and it's international food, so I think Jackie will send out a sign-up genius, so if you don't get that, let Jackie know if you want to be on the sign-up genius um, sign-up sheet. If not... We will assign you something like steak, lobster, tamales. After the meal, we have our wonderful youth choir practice. So they'll be over in the youth choir practice room, and hopefully they'll be singing soon. And one final announcement, we'll have missions in July for two more weeks. So if you want to designate an offering specifically for missions, uh, do that today, tomorrow. If you, can, if you forget, we can still put it in. And uh, Blake Keenum, which is crazy, a guy I think from Mississippi that might be related to Alaris, is up in the northern regions of Canada. Talk about culture shock, going from beautiful weather to the tundra. But he'll be on Wednesday. He's our last one, and then Pastor Wayne will be doing some wrap-ups for one or two or three or four or five or six Wednesdays after that. And that's all I've got.
1: Good morning. I have the privilege of reading our Life of Christ reading this morning. It will be found in Matthew chapter 16. We'll be reading the first 26 verses. Matthew chapter 16 let's begin and the Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test him they asked him to show them a sign from heaven he answered them when it is evening you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red and in the morning it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky but you cannot interpret the signs of the times an evil and a adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except a sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to, to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves of the 5,000, and how many baskets you gathered, or the seven loaves of the 4,000, and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever shall save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul?
2: Amen. Thank you, Blake, for the reading from the life of Christ much to think about here isn't it we've come to today to worship Jesus Christ i want to give you a moment privately to prepare your heart to indeed worship him this gospel is incredible particularly the confession that peter makes which is true christ means the messiah and he has come to to die he has come to rise from the dead and ascend on high, as we'll unfold here in just a bit. But this phrase about what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul, I remember the time when that was impressed on my mind more than any other. And I don't want to create a joke about it, but it was the death of Elvis Presley. I was a young man and, and, and heard the news, and he had claimed to be a Christian, whether he was or not. You know, he'll stand before Christ. But he, he, he sir, sure seemed to gain the whole world at that time and then died of an overdose, just abusing himself. And it seemed like such a waste. And as a young man, I didn't want to gain the whole world and lose my soul. I wanted to pick up my cross and follow Christ because he is the Son of God. And it, it made a huge impact every time I hear that verse. That's, I, I, it brings me back to that point in my life as a young man. I'm not sure what the interactions here as we read about the life of Christ do for you. I encourage you to continue to read and think about the reality of Christ who walked in our very shoes and lived among us and died, to atone for our sin, and has risen from the dead that we might rise with him and has ascended to the majesty on high where he is now mediating for us and the reason we can go to him to that throne of grace is because of Christ and there we'll find help in our time of need take a moment to think on Christ to prepare your heart to worship him this day I'll give you a moment privately to prepare your heart, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we have gathered together today to worship your holy name. I pray that you will receive the worship from us, meager as it might be. You are a glorious and great and good God. You have given us breath and life today. You have given us a desire to exalt your name. I pray that you would be pleased with our worship in this day. I pray that you would use it indeed to draw us closer to that very throne of grace to which we can look to find true help in our time of need. I pray, Father, that the little ones might hear of your truth and may be planted deep within their soul, rise up to the fruit of righteousness in a confession as Jesus Christ as Lord. I pray for each of us that we might be once again reminded, reminded of these great truths, the significance of every day in which you have given us breath to praise your holy name, to live a life that will bring about glory to your name, that will display the beauty of who you are in the life of your regenerate people. I pray, Father, that you will... Sanctify us and make us more like Christ. May we be Christ in every environment that we find ourselves in, whether it's a personal relationship, whether it's in a group setting, or whether it's in public and private. At all times, I pray, Father, that you'll work on our heart, that we might reflect the beauty of who you are. I pray that indeed. It may cost us, but might we be willing to pick up our cross and truly follow you and to gain Christ in all things. May you be exalted this day, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.
1: Let's take our hymn books and stand this morning as we sing some hymns. With uh, a theme of evangelism, missions, and servanthood, starting with number 369. Tell it out with gladness. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. 369. Three fifty-seven, and we'll sing: "Rescue the perishing, snatch others from the fire, and save them." Jude one twenty-three. Three fifty-seven. <laughs>
3: Church. This morning, uh, we'll be reading from Acts 12, 6 through 24, which can be found on page 920 of the Pew Bibles. Turn there with me now, if you would. In this passage, we're given detailed accounts of the persecution of the Lord's people, his actions therein. And last week, we read of how God allowed one of Christ's closest three disciples James to be martyred. This week we read how he miraculously rescues another of the three, Peter, from his incarceration and otherwise certain death. We also see how the believers prayed for those, uh, for Peter and uh, the disciples who are being persecuted, and how they are astonished and uh, quite disbelieving uh, at how the Lord answered those prayers. So let us give glory to our sovereign Lord. In this reading. Verse 6, chapter 12. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy she did not open the gate, "'but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. "'They said to her, "'You are out of your mind.' "'But she kept insisting that it was so, "'and they kept saying, "'It is his angel.' "'But Peter continued knocking, "'and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. "'But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, "'he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, "'and he said, "'Tell these things to James and the brothers.' Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance amongst the soldiers what, over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of God, oh God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and to at last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. I've sometimes heard it said that uh, the best prayers are praises and the best praises are prayers. This morning, I would like to lead us in prayer by giving praise to our father, the king of glory, using some of the words of some of the psalmists. (laughs) Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Yet we will install you, our God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day we will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are failing and raises up all who are bowed down. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cries and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praises of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. We lift you up in praise, O Lord, maker of the heavens and the earth, joining with the believers all around the globe, as the saints have been doing each Sunday for the past two millennia. Holy are you, O Lord. We thank you for your wisdom and sovereignty, for your presence in our lives. We ask that you would uphold us as we go about your work this week. Please protect us from the works of the enemy and those who hate you. Turn our hearts to be fixed on you. Magnify your name through our lives and our offering, and help us to lead all those around us into a relationship with you, for you are the way, the truth, and the life. Prepare our minds and hearts to hear your word as you have prepared Pastor Wayne to preach it. In the glorious name of the Son, Christ Jesus, amen.
1: Thank you, Amber. Let's take your hymn books once more and stand and turn number 371. Our first verse says, Come all Christians, be committed to the service of the Lord. Make your lives for him more fitted. Tune your hearts with one accord. Come into his courts with gladness. Each his sacred vows renew. Turn away from sin and sadness. Be transformed with life anew. 371, come Christians, be committed. 40. Amber's offertory was entitled Heart of Stone, and we'll be singing about how the Lord will break their hearts of stone and give them hearts for love alone. So 440 here, I am Lord.
2: Thank you, Blake, Amber, Church, especially the Nelson, ladies, for singing that song from time to time. I thought about getting you up here to sing it again, but I, didn't, I don't want to embarrass you. I'm not Andy. I'll <laughs> ask Yes, you would. It's a beautiful song because it talks about what God will do. And yet he chooses the instrumentality of his people to proclaim that word, and we just go, proclaim, and he'll do the work. He'll provide the bread, he will satisfy. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter eight, and we'll pick up at verse six, Hebrews eight. I'll probably read it in context if I have time. Clock stops, so I'm good. (laughs) If you haven't been with us, we're going through the book of Hebrews. It's said to be a letter to the Hebrews, and I mentioned it really is a sermon. It's an exemplar of a first century sermon, something that would have been preached, but yet recorded in a way that we can go through it. And we have been going through it. The the central theme is the superiority of Christ in the very beginning to the very end. And integral to all of it is his mediatorial work. No other book focuses on that aspect of Christ in his high priestly ministry. Now we get to chapter 8 here. And it talks about Christ is a better mediator of a better covenant. and So that's what we'll unpack, this idea of a better covenant. And I went ahead and put it in your worship folder, part one, because there'll be more parts to follow. (laughs) I didn't figure I'd get it all in anyway. But if you are taking notes and want to know what we're going to try to accomplish today as we look through this is simply we will emphasize the better, the, this better covenant by explaining biblical covenants in the first place, and I think that'll be helpful, but it'll take a while before I get there. I do have five points. Maybe I'll get to one of them. We'll see. Notice verse 6 here in chapter 8. He says this is a better covenant because it's based on better promises. Remember, he's comparing the Old Covenant, to what we would call the New. And as he explains this is the New Covenant, it is a better covenant. It's based on better promises. We're not that familiar with the idea of covenants, particularly in the Bible. And it's, it's really good to sift through the text of Scripture because you're going to hear about covenants from the very beginning to to the end. Progressively and, of course, providentially, God reveals what these are about and how these agreements that God has made will be accomplished. I'll go ahead and give you the answer. His name is Jesus Christ. From the very beginning to the very end, it, it is Jesus Christ who will accomplish all of this. This is difficult in some respects to, to think through the concepts here, but it's really important for us to have a framework to understand the Bible itself and particularly God's redemptive plan. God will bring about all that He has promised to do. You can be assured of that. He has made a contract a covenant. He has promised to do it. There's no need for us to be anxious about anything, but by prayer, make our requests known to God. We don't need to be anxious for anything because we know what the end of the story is. And if you're not certain about this life and what is to come, I'll put it the way Paul would tell the church at Corinth in chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians as he's talking about the resurrection. And he reminds us that in verse 22, as in Adam, all die. That's the natural progression of mankind. You are going to die. But on the other category, everyone that is in Christ shall be made alive. That is the two categories that you really have to worry about. We're worried about all kinds of other categories in this day, but there's really only two that matter. Are you in Adam? Yes, we all. Are you in Christ? That's the question. If you're in Christ, you will live. Christ has an order. He is the first fruit. That is, because he rose from the dead, those that are in Christ will also assuredly rise from the dead and be given a glorified body. He'll describe that in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. But then he says this, and I think it's intriguing. I'll just read it for you in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 15. Then comes the end. See, it's already told us how it will all end. You want to know how it ends? Here's how it ends. When he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. That's the end. Christ wins. He reigns. And so what is he doing now? As we learned in Hebrews. He's on the throne. Well, Paul will say in verse 25, he must reign. That's what he's doing now. He must reign. He is an authority right now. He must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. And guess what? The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I hate death. Disease just points to death. But Christ has overcome it you remember he's risen from the dead and if you're in Christ you will too men are called to recognize Christ to come to him in faith and confess him as lord to, to believe in your heart. To believe in your heart, what? An expression that God has raised him from the dead. Believe that and you will also be saved. Saved from what? From the condemnation that is in Adam. Saved from the wrath that is to come. A wrath that will be executed justly. By Jesus Christ, the sovereign Lord. That's why there's no salvation outside of him. He is the judge of all. He has all authority. He is reigning even now in full authority, in not only in heaven, but in earth. He is currently on the throne of authority. The preacher of Hebrews began... His message that way, do you remember, looking to Christ in verse three of chapter one, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. This is why you don't need to be anxious if you're in Christ. If you're outside of Christ, you should be worried. You should be very anxious. Those that are in Christ, we trust Him. He is upholding all things. And beyond that, He made then purification for our sin. And therefore, we can live. And now, what did He do after He made purification for our sin? That is the atonement on the cross. He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. That's where He's at now. You want to know where Jesus is? Went after his resurrection, that's where he went, and that's where he is. So let's look at him from chapter 8, and since the clock doesn't work, I'll read the whole chapter. Because he's getting to an ultimate point, the central theme of his message in Hebrews, the central theme uh, is this one who is seated on the throne of the majesty in heaven. That, that's his point, and that's how he begins. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Who is he? He is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices this is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, He wouldn't be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect a tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the, note this, old. As the covenant he mediates... "...is better, since it's enacted on better promises. For if that, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them, that with them, when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant, the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. It's not like the covenant that I made with them, "'with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand "'to bring them out of the land of Egypt. "'For they did not continue in my covenant. "'And I showed no concern for them,' declares the Lord. "'For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days,' declares the Lord. "'I will put my laws into their minds "'and write them on their hearts, "'and I will be their God, and they shall be my people.' And they shall not teach each, uh, each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that we would gain insight into your holy word. Illuminate our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit to hear and heed what Christ would say to his church this day. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Remember the audience who was first listening to this message. They were Hebrews, Jews. They heard the message of Jesus Christ, that Jesus was the Messiah. And they confessed him as Lord. And throughout, you can hear the preacher question, or did you? He challenged them because maybe their confession was without real meaning. In their case, they were tempted to glom on to the culture in which they existed, to function in ways in which they thought was right in their own eyes, from their own perspective. They would say nice things about Jesus... But in practice, they had a desire, many, to engage in commerce and religion just like everybody else. Well, that kind of confession is blasphemy. That type of hypocrisy is against the one and only true creator of heaven and earth, and sustainer of all things, and ultimately the judge in whom we will all stand before. Here's the real question I often quip in my own mind. You say you believe in Jesus, does he believe in you? And I get that from the last part of John chapter 2. When a great proclamation was made during Passover, and in John chapter 2, in verse 23, it says, Many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing. But Jesus, on His part, didn't entrust Himself to them, because He knew all people. And He needed no one to bear witness about man, for He Himself knew what was in man. I don't know what's in your heart, but Christ does. <laughs> And hence, does he believe in you? And I think that's the tone, too, this preacher continues to give by warning about apostasy, about telling them, oh, I want to tell you about this high priestly mediatorial work of Christ based on Melchizedek. But it's hard to talk about because you're lazy. He says dull of hearing. That means lazy. It is hard work to get in, to, to, to read, to think, to engage your mind, you're going to have to be active, not passive. He says someone ought to teach you the basic principles again. Say that in chapter 5. And warn them about drifting away a number of times. Jesus Christ is the measuring rod for all truth. We must give, as I mentioned, account to him. Not not to our own self and what we think about this and that, but to Christ. In Hebrews chapter 4, if you want to flip back, I'll show you a couple of verses to remind us about who this one is that we will stand before. In chapter four and verse thirteen, he mentions that he says, No creature is hidden from his sight. God sees He sees everything, and specifically he's talking about Christ. But we are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's who you stand before, the Sovereign Lord. But do you know the Sovereign Lord functions as a mediator for your sin? And that's a beautiful thing. There is this awesome respect and fear we have towards Christ. And yet a personal, imminent relationship with him. And he'll unpack that in the next verse, verse 14. We have a high priest. Well, what's a high priest? It's someone who mediates, in this case, in behalf of God and man. We have to stand before him as, as Lord, as king, as sovereign... And yet, here he is functioning not only in his authority, which he has, but also in his advocacy. And and both of these are true, that we must know about Christ. He's gone through the heavens. He's on the throne. Who's on the throne? Jesus, the Son of God. And because of that, we can hold fast our confession of faith. Because the high priest that's there in all authority on the throne at all times is also our advocate. Can you believe it? He's the one pleading on your behalf. That's it. He says he's, he's he, this high priest, he, is, uh, he, he says we're not, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Why? He actually walked in our shoes. He knows how hard it is. I don't think anybody suffered as much as him. He knows what it is. He knows what it's like. He it says in every respect, he's been tempted as, a, as a, we are. I, I was never in the wilderness for 40 days or 40 nights, <laughs> tempted by the, the devil himself. But Christ was and went to the very end without sin. And because of that, then that's the one who actually knows us, can sympathize with us. You say, I I can't understand why people do certain things. Christ knows. And he's your advocate. You can run there at any time. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I can't hardly believe it. He doesn't have you. You, you, you get down uh, and, and crawl for a certain distance or say a certain mantra, just the expression, will you forgive me? The answer is yes, because it's all been paid for, atoned by the high priest. He brought that blood in his own blood into the most holy place and it only, had to be ha- it only occurred one time. A single sacrifice. All is paid by Christ. That's the assurance that we have. Our authority is also our advocate. So how do we know it all work out? We just look to him. That's it. The preacher in Hebrews will begin to close out this message by saying that very thing after identifying a number of people who look to Christ in faith in chapter 11. In chapter 12, he draws our attention once more, because it's permeated throughout it. He says, looking unto Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. The perfected means to bring it to accomplishment. We look to him, Christ, who for the joy that was set before him, he, he looked beyond the current circumstances. He endured the cross. It says, despise the shame. And where is he? He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. From the very beginning of this message to the very end, he wants you to know who Christ is. He is our advocate, He is our mediator, He is our high priest in complete authority. He is on the throne. So, no wonder that he can say in chapter 8 then that as it is, Christ is a better ministry than whatever came before and whatever might propose after. We look to Christ, it's more excellent. It's more excellent than the covenant that they had because there are better promises. Better covenant, better promises. I'll unpack the promises in days to come, but just to show you where they are, look at verse 10 through verse 12. This is a summary of what we call the the new covenant, a covenant. I'm in chapter 8 and verse 10, the covenant that he makes. After those days, notice this, I will put the law and I will write them. I will be their God. They're not going to do this. Why? Because I'm going to do this, and ultimately I will remember their sins no more. This is the terms of this new covenant. Today, just to give some background, I think it would be helpful to build on this concept of covenant, biblically, to understand what it is, so that when he says this is a better covenant, build on the better promises, it might be more significant to us. For this, I encourage you to maybe write down a verse or two and look up in greater detail because I'm going to be brief. No snickering here. Okay, I'm going to try to be brief and get through it. We'll see. When we say the word covenant, think of this, contract treaty, or will. That's really what we're trying to say when we say covenant. And in used in the, in the Bible this way, it's used as a contract, agreement, or a will by God in reference to man. There are a number of covenants in the Bible that you can unfold. And they help to build a framework to understand what this is all about, where it began, where it's going, and, and, and how it will unfold. Ultimately, it is God who fulfills all. Ultimately, all of them point to Jesus Christ. There are a number of, bo- of covenants in the Bible, but there are five that are specifically expressed, and I would categorize those as biblical covenants. And If you're not sure what they are, you can turn on the back of your worship folder. I wrote them down back there, and we'll try to briefly discuss them. The new covenant is the one that's mentioned here. I'll just say also, I don't want you to be confused by covenant theology. Some of you are familiar with it, some of you are not. You perhaps you're familiar with the term. That's not what we're talking about. Covenant theology is simply a system to understand God's contractual agreements. And Covenant theology proposes this idea that God created a, an initial covenant of works and when that failed, he initiated a covenant of grace. And some would express it differently, that it was always that way. Um, there are strengths and weaknesses in that system, but that's just a system. It's it's a system, the works and grace, which you can find references to that to some degree, but not explicit statements saying, I will establish a covenant like we have here in Hebrews eight, where he says, "I'm going to establish a new covenant." Well, God says that. Instead, it's something that is deduced, and uh, like I said, strengths and weaknesses. And I, um, I, 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 I don't hold to that system, but I think there is some value in it, but not totally. Another system, by the way, which you'll hear, is called dispensationalism. It, it is similar. It's another framework to understand how God works with his people. There are strengths and weaknesses and different concepts of that, but essentially the idea of dispensationalism, which is a system, it looks at the way God works with people at various times. And the scripture does talk about that. In fact, in Hebrews, if you remember, it opens that way. Long ago, and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. That's what we mean by a dispensation. Now, there are some people who who say there's four, there's seven, and all kinds of numbers, which again, you just deduce from uh, your study of scripture, and there's some strengths and weaknesses in that as well. In the end, I think There's too many weaknesses there, and so I don't affirm that either. But these covenants that we're going to talk about are what is known as biblical covenants. It's not biblical in the sense that those other two systems are unbiblical. They're fine in a way to try to understand what God is doing, in a way to synthesize it, right? But the biblical covenants are those ones that are clearly expressed in Scripture and we need to know about and we need to understand they're all important. And they build on one another to this very point, the pinnacle, which is the new covenant. So let me go through this. And and what really persuades me more than anything else and why I don't really hold to the fullness of either system is through my hermeneutic or way of understanding scripture, which seeks to ultimately look for the intent of the author from a literal historical and a grammatical analysis. All right, the five covenants, five biblical covenants that are described in the Bible that are important for us to know. The first one is the Noahic covenant. And if you want to Follow along. Turn to Genesis chapter 9. I'll give you a brief on it. This is the first covenant that is clearly expressed in Scripture. We call it the Noahic covenant. You remember the background of that? The earth, all the people virtually were wicked in great rebellion against God. God rightly and justly brought about a cataclysmic judgment, a flood that covered the entire earth. He left the earth with a great warning. He appointed a prophet, Noah, to tell. Nobody listened. They all went about their business. They thought things would just be fine. God judged the earth with water. And all of creation, under that judgment, was was subject to that judgment. When it was done, you'll find in chapter 9, here is the covenant and the blessing given. And it just begins this way. God said to them as they get out of the ark, be fruitful, and Noah and his family, the only survivors, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Big need for that because <laughs> it was empty at that point. So, so this affirmation then, that reaffirmation of what had uh, God had called Adam to and Eve to at the beginning to, to fill the earth, here it is reaffirmed once again. And a difference now in verse 3 that they could eat it, eat whatever they want. Just like green plants, he could eat living beans as well. And then God said, verse 8, He says to Noah and his sons with him, and here's the covenant. Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you. The birds, livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, for, it is, is, for it, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, verse 11. What is the covenant? That never again shall all flesh be cut off by waters of flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth, the entirety of the earth. God gives them a sign, a reminder from that day that exists to this day, and that's verse 12. This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you, and for all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, the bow is seen in the clouds. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become to a flood to destroy all flesh. When the, cloud, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. I hope you notice in here this covenant is what we would call unconditional. And it's everlasting. What's the condition that Noah has to fulfill? Nothing. Cre- creation? Nothing. His sons? Nothing. All those that would come from them? Nothing. God said, I'm going to do this. This is my treaty. This is my contract. This is my promise. And I'm going to, he says, I will remember. It isn't that God doesn't remember. This is for us to remember that he remembers. God doesn't forget. He won't change his mind. He puts this bow in the cloud. We can be assured that there will not be a cataclysmic judgment in the days of Noah, even though we are certainly worthy of such. In fact, every morning I wake up and think about his mercy, which is new every day. All of us deserve judgment, and God grants mercy. That's, that's not giving us what we actually deserve. I like to quip sometimes, that people say, How are you doing? I say, Better than I deserve. Kind of tongue in cheek, but it's true. And then he gives us grace, that's those things that we don't deserve. The good gifts that we get from God, the fact that we get things to enjoy. This is who God is and it reminds us of it. And then he puts this sign in, in the sky which we get to see and our culture has totally forgotten what that is. But it reminds me every time I see it appropriated by those people who would be in rebellion against God is to remind myself how gracious and merciful He is. Not just to them, but to me. I deserve to be drowned like a rat. But He shows mercy and He shows grace and He reminds us of that through that sign that frequently comes i appreciate the answers in genesis by the way making an emphasis of reminding us what the sign is all about and if you haven't been had access to their material i encourage you to consider doing so it's a great resource this covenant is unconditional and everlasting and it it doesn't mean this earth won't be destroyed it will, but, but it won't be temporarily restro- destroyed. It will be permanently destroyed at the end of the age by Christ. It will burn with fervent heat, and what will come of it? A different heaven, a different earth, a new heaven and new earth. And that's what we're looking forward to. This is a covenant of his unconditional and everlasting mercy, and grace, and we'll come to find out as Revelation progresses that it is through this one, Jesus Christ, the capstone in the new covenant. Second covenant I want to remind you about is the Abrahamic covenant. And for that, I turn to Genesis 12, and you can see it in 15 as well. But I'll try to be brief because of time, and we'll look at 12 here, you might remember, this is God calling Abram in Genesis 12, verse 1. He, te- he says to Abram, who will later be changed, name will be Abraham. At this point, he is a pagan. He is an unbeliever. And this is what God does with unbelievers, by the way. He calls them. And he just tells them, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house into the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And note this, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In chapter 15, it'll explain this. these are the details of the covenant, but it's actually implemented in detail in chapter 15, which we'll save for another time. This Abrahamic covenant that God makes with Abraham, notice the similarity. This is unconditional. He, he isn't asking Abraham... Abram at this time, hey, you want to do this trip and and leave your family and go? He just commands him to go. And he does. And he says, I will bless you. Contingent on what? Nothing. This is what we call grace. God simply gives unmerited favor. What did Abram do to to earn this blessing to deserve it absolutely nothing, and if you are blessed by God, likewise you have done nothing to, to to merit it, to earn it. It is given by grace. This covenant then that God makes with Abram, we call it the Abrahamic covenant. It's central to the story of redemption. Elements to it here, that, which will physically be revealed and point to that spiritual truth. They are like the old covenant in the sense that it, there is a shadow aspect to it. Uh, a, a temporary fulfillment of seed, land, descendants, and protection and blessing. It will be through Abraham, as it's mentioned, that who will be blessed? all of the families of the earth will be blessed. How, the, how will that occur? How will that blessing come? Well, it is through divine revelation. We find out that that blessing comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord. MacArthur comments on this covenant. Is, this is unconditional in the sense of its ultimate fulfillment of a kingdom and salvation for Israel. But conditional in terms of immediate fulfillment, its national importance to Israel is magnified by its repeated references and points to appeal throughout the Old Testament to its importance to, spir- to spiritually to all believers. And Paul will talk about that in Galatians chapter 3 and 4, that all who are in Christ are Abraham's offspring. It is Christ. And I'll, I'll bring that up in a minute, but I want to move on to the third covenant, and that's the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Covenant. It's the one that is referred to in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 8 as the Old Covenant. It's the Mosaic Covenant. It's the covenant to which the Hebrews wanted to go back to, that religious system of priests in which he argues Christ is a far greater priest. Well, there was a covenant. The third biblical covenant that I'm talking about, you can find it, let's just look in um, Exodus 19, if you will. Exodus chapter 19. people go out from the land of Egypt, they're delivered, and they go into the wilderness of Sinai. And Moses goes up to God, verse 3, and the Lord then calls down to him, saying, the, and here's the, here's the terms, you shall say to the house of Jacob, tell the house of uh, people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to Myself. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Notice something different in this covenant and the first two. Here you have, if you do this, then you will be. Treasured. This covenant has a condition to it, unlike the previous two. You listen, you obey, and you're going to be blessed. This covenant does provide a, a benefit. It helps suppress evil among people. It's, it's the law, and laws are good. It suppresses evil. But the problem is, we continue to disobey the law. You know, it's nice to have speed limit signs, especially if you don't want to die on the road. You don't want people going 100 miles an hour on a really windy country road. Now, you may not like going 30, you might think it's a little too slow and disobey it. But you're probably glad that you don't have too many people doing a hundred. And if they did, you'd find them in the ditch just a little ways up. And that has happened. But I digress. This law then does serve to provide some sort of governance. Obedience to it means blessing. You don't get in trouble. Maybe, maybe you don't go in the ditch and die and hurt yourself. So there's there's a benefit to it. Disobedience meant cursing or some penalty. But this covenant, this is the one that's referred to in Hebrews chapter 8, and I guess I should have told you to keep your finger there because we're going to go back and forth, but uh, we'll jump forward so you can go back to Hebrews 8. I just want you to notice, look down to verse 13 in Hebrews 8. In Hebrews 8, and verse 13 In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. What is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. He's talking about this covenant, this Mosaic covenant, this old covenant, different than the others that are mentioned in that this one was intentionally temporary. You see that? It wasn't designed to last forever. Why? Because there's a flaw in the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant. There's a flaw in it. Do you see him talk about it in verse 7 of Hebrews 8? If that first covenant, and again, he's referring to the Mosaic Covenant, that's the context. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. What's the flaw? Something wrong with the law? No. Something's wrong with you and me, with mankind, because we're lawless and lawbreakers. We we, we like to redefine the law, describe it differently than it actually is, So we don't look so bad or confess while everybody else is doing that. So that should be the standard, right? No, it's not. The standard isn't fellow lawbreakers. Remember, the standard is Christ. Mankind is not faultless. And so this perfect, flawless law only shows our failure to obey it. I appreciate people putting out the Ten Commandments on the side of the road or courthouses or wherever. As long as when you see that you recognize, you know, I hadn't kept a single one of those. It judges me as guilty. Yeah, I I, I want to strive towards that for sure. But it doesn't really describe me. There's only one person who ever kept it, and that's Christ. See, that even points to Christ because you look to the law and you say, I can't do this. I need mercy. I need grace. And so you go to the high priest who is what? He is able to help in your time of need. I have great need because I have been proven to be guilty. So what is the purpose of the law? And here, I just invite you, keep your finger in, in Hebrews 8. We'll be back. But just flip over to Galatians chapter 3. Because Paul explains this better than me. The law is, uh, is the measure of God's glory, which we fall short. So why the law? And Paul poses that question hypothetically in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19. He explains it. Why the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. The intermediary is is Moses, who functions as a high priest, who who functions as a mediator, who has this law, this divine law that has been given. And it, it, it is because, you know what, beloved? It's helpful to know that you're a transgressor of the law. Because otherwise, you would think you don't have a problem. It would be like having cancer with no diagnosis. You're going to die. You need help. You have some fatal disease and, and no one tells you about it. Th- that's a great benefit in the law, to have it enumerated that way, to, to, to show our failure to, to keep it. Verse 21, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed come by the law. That's what we're saying. That's the fault. It isn't the fault in the law in and of itself. It is that it isn't designed to bring about life. Creating all kinds of rules and regulations for you to follow isn't going to make you righteous before God. You might be more righteous before me or any other man, but you won't be more righteous than Jesus Christ who is absolutely perfect. And that is the measure. That's the measure of the man. It's the man Christ Jesus. So it doesn't bring about life, not because there's an inherent flaw in it. The flaw is us. That's what he's saying. In this sense, the scripture, verse 22, imprisoned everything under sin. Why? Imprisoned. Because you're guilty, you're going to jail. That's the point. You're guilty, you're going to die. In Adam, all die. That's what he's saying. And then, when you recognize that, so then we understand that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before faith came, we we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. You may not even know that you're in prison. It's amazing to see people who come to faith in Christ and finally recognize how incredible that is. They didn't even know they were in bondage by their sin. They just thought, that's the the life that I'm in. When Christ comes, everything changes. This idea of revelation. So then, the law is our guardian. Until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith it is christ who fulfills all righteousness in christ then we're no longer under a guardian for in christ jesus you are all sons of god then through faith you you move from the category of adam to the category of christ you get it through faith brought about by divine revelation of God. And notice the connection now here in this Abrahamic covenant and why I mentioned a little bit of the background of the covenants. For as many as you have been baptized into Christ, that means immersed, by the way, it's not talking about a symbol, it's the reality of our spiritual immersion with Christ. You've put on Christ, we don't physically have Christ as a cope, but that's a. That's imagery there. For those that are immersed in Christ, who have put on Christ, that is, you're regenerate, you're a Christian, there is what's the standing. There's neither Jew, nor Greek, nor flit, nor neither slave, nor free, nor male or female. You are all one in Christ. That is what matters. That is the distinction that really matters. Nothing else does. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. That's the point. Everything else is a lesser category that's really, in the big picture, not that important. And here's verse 29, and I want to hit this. And if you're in Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Remember the Abrahamic comp promise in, in you, in your seed, all nations will be blessed. You will get blessing. How will you get blessing? Because you're in Christ. It, it is through the promise of Christ that this was always meant to be executed. And this temporary law that was put in place only demonstrates our need for Christ. Well, I have two more and two minutes, so... I am going to expand in greater detail the new covenant in days to come. But I'll just tell you this. Let me just read this Davidic covenant for you since it's number four. This is a promise, and you can find it in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 16. Nathan the prophet is giving this message to David, and he says... I, and God says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house, verse 16 of 2 Samuel 7, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Like the previous two covenants, the Noahic and the Abrahamic, This one that is, we call this the Davidic covenant. It is a promise of a king. A king who would be on the throne of David, not just for a while, but for absolutely ever and ever. How would that covenant be fulfilled? Well, I hope you already know. By the one who's seated on the throne of the majesty on high. You see how they're all connected to Christ. They point to Christ. David's kingdom physically ended, but his seed, Christ, lives forever. And his throne of righteousness, as Christ is the majesty on high. That covenant, by the way, is also unconditional and it's also everlasting David didn't have to do anything to cause this to happen God says I'm going to do it it was his plan from the very beginning finally the new covenant and this is where we'll end today and begin next time and I'll just read it from Hebrews chapter 8 if you're still there Hebrews chapter 8. Actually, you can go to Hebrews 8 and look at it, and I'll read you Jeremiah 31. Because what he does here in Hebrews 8, and beginning at verse 8 and following, there's a promise that is made. Well, he's pointing back to one of their prophets in, in their context, these Hebrews. he said, I'm not coming up with this idea that the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, is just conditional and temporary and needs to be done away with. It was intended to do that to bring us to Christ, who is the author of the New Covenant. And I'll read it from Jeremiah. You can, you can stay there. for Jeremiah 31. 31. Behold, the days are coming, and compare that to what he says here in Hebrews 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. What is that? That's the old covenant. He says, my covenant, which they broke. Why they they broke it? Because they're sinners. And though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this Is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And it goes on to say, They'll no longer teach one another his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. He's not talking that you won't have to teach somebody something. He's not saying that. It's the, it's the significance of it. I can sit here and give you the gospel all day long and tell you all the facts about this, but there, there has to be a dynamic of, uh, of the Holy Spirit to work in the heart of man to change that heart from a dead stone to a living heart. That's the illustration that's given. And this is nothing I can accomplish. All we do is go and proclaim Christ. And it's through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit that finally you see the significance of what is being said. That's what you're saying. I'm not forcing people to know the Lord, to confess the Lord. It It is a work of the Holy Spirit in their life when they say, Yes, I see Christ. That's the new covenant. And notice, like those other three that I mentioned, save the Mosaic Covenant, which was designed to be temporary, that didn't have the design to bring about life, this new covenant, do you notice it's also unconditional? It's all gone. I'm going to do this. I'm going to write it in their heart, not on a piece of paper, not on a tablet to where they just have to look it up and obey. There's some inward desire that now I want to please God. I want to obey God. There is a desire that brings about repentance when you fail to obey God. How does that occur? It occurs because this is all God's work. I will do this, he says, and this will be forever. Again, once greater assurance why you will not lose your salvation because you cannot, because God has promised it. It isn't based on the condition of your fickle faith. It is based on the condition of Christ's faithfulness. If you are unfaithful, He is faithful because he cannot deny himself. What a great assurance. This is the better covenant. And we'll unpack that in days to come. I hope you look forward to it. I encourage you to think through these agreements that God has made. In this particular covenant, it's it's an excellent new covenant in quality and superiority It's better and it's new. It's better because Christ is the mediator and he fulfills all of these commandments, should I say, covenants through his mediatorial work. And, beloved, we receive the blessings of his promises. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that we'll be reminded once again of your great, glorious work, your love It's manifested in mercy and grace every day and because of your divine faithfulness to who you are. I pray that you will build all of us up that we might indeed grow in grace and the knowledge of you. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Take a moment to think and respond, not to me, but to Christ directly, who is at the throne of grace to provide help in your time of need. Hearts always be filled with great joy and thanksgiving for Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. We shouldn't play Amazing Grace at the end of the service, because we'll have to sing it. Let's stand together and sing it as we desist. What number in case you need it? 104. And I know Jerry will do the first and last, but I digress. 104. Thank mm-hmm. you.
0: Gracious Father, now He who is the Blessed and the Only Sovereign, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen and amen.
3: We're dismissed.